I do believe that enlarging the European Union is a geopolitical necessity. However, the challenge for Europe is to balance both the sense of urgency to bring in countries quickly, but on the other hand, to make sure that the European Union is enlargement ready. So if new countries come in, it actually gets even stronger and is not weakened because the system isn't prepared for so many members. Welcome to the Eliamep podcast series. I have the pleasure to host in this podcast Professor Daniela Schwarzer, member of the Executive Board of Bertelsmann Stiftung, and Shahin Vallet, head of a joint economics program in the German Council on Foreign Relations in Berlin. Well, we will talk about reforming the EU in order to go ahead with the enlargement. But before we begin discussing the Franco-German proposals and Europe's relations with its neighbors, I have to ask you both how worried you are about the terrorist attack against the people of Israel by Hamas and the inevitable escalation of the violence in the Middle East when the war in Ukraine is going on and we know how that is affecting the European Union. Professor Schwarzer, Well, first of all, let me say how shocking and disastrous the terrorist attacks have been and how important it is to stand in solidarity with Israel at this moment. And I was very glad to see how strong the reactions were throughout uh, the European Union. Um, And, you know, this happened all on Saturday uh, that the first political statements were made. And since then, the news have gotten worse and worse with Um, the attacks on civilians and the numbers of victims. So this is a dramatic situation and it's it's important to to stand by Israel's side. The European Union is is of course faced with um, w- with a big challenge, uh, as are all its member states. Um, you asked me how how worried I'm about the conflict. Well, first of all, of course, we have to be worried for Israel and the attacks. But there is potentially larger dimension to this conflict. It could spread if uh, more parties get involved. We already see Israel being attacked from the northern border, uh, from uh, Lebanese territory. And there is a risk that this escalates and takes a larger dimension. From a European perspective, this is another disastrous conflict in its immediate neighborhood. Um, And it shows us how much attention we need to pay to our neighborhood. For years, we have upheld the illusion that Europe was surrounded by a ring of friends. Um, and now we see we are increasingly being surrounded by a ring of crises in which, uh, or in some of which uh, the United States play a big role um, as we have seen in Ukraine and the support for Ukraine and its fending off of the uh, war of Russia. Um, and the U.S. also stands up clearly with Israel, has uh, transported um, ammunition, a, an aircraft carrier and other things to uh, the neighborhood of Israel. But as Europeans, we have to be aware that uh, this is part of our responsibility that we also have to bear to take care of the security of our neighborhood and thus our own security. And I think this is the biggest challenge now to think forward Also looking at the U.S. elections coming up in November 2024, where we may have a result that a non-transatlantic president comes into office. So both in terms of short-term crisis management, the EU is challenged, but also in the longer or medium-term perspective of 
having to step up its own contribution to security in our neighborhood. I think this is of utmost importance. Uh, Mr. Varley, what is your opinion? How worried are you? And sometimes it feels in these last years when everything has gone so wrong, that is um, our democracy against an, an autocratic way of, uh, of living. Um, I, I don't know if this is what is at stake or or at least uh, what is at stake in Israel. And, and I would uh, you know, echo uh, what Daniela has said about the empathy that we must have towards uh, Israeli civilians. I think the real um, uh, worry I have, uh, and I share also the view that Daniela expressed, that you know this shows that basically all around Europe, there are Uh, major conflicts that Europe is basically unable on its own to address. Uh, there is one in Azerbaijan and Armenia. There is one between Russia and, and, and Ukraine. And now uh, one in, in, in Israel, which was a dormant conflict, in fact, for, for a long time and which has flared up. I, I think the biggest danger I see in Israel at this point is that this leads to an escalation and that beyond a ground operation in Gaza, which is uh, on its way, Uh, Israel decides to uh, strike uh, Iran uh, in retaliation for the possible and very likely support that Iran has provided to Hezbollah and to Hamas to launch these uh, these attacks. I think such an internationalization of the conflict uh, would be a great danger for world stability. And I think the great hope we should have beyond uh, a short-term retaliation is really uh, that this is an opportunity uh, uh, and the responsibility of the Europeans in particular to try and restart a peace process that has been failing for for uh, for more than 25 years now. So, you know, the I think the great uh, sadness of this is that neither the Americans, uh, who have effectively withdrawn from the Middle East, including from the Israel-Palestinian conflict, nor the Europeans, are uh, apparently in a position to even start uh, to get uh, Israeli and Palestinians around the table around some version of a, of a new uh, de-escalation and potential peace plan. And I think this is what's the most concerning, is that it seems that the only way out of this is an escalation rather than a de-escalation in a, in, a, in a peace process, which should be our, our prime focus. And now, Ms. Farton, how do you think that uh, the enlargement and redesigning the European Union's relationship with its neighborhood will have will help will help European Union um, in these volatile times? Enlargement moved high up on the European political agenda, really after uh, Russia's large-scale attack on Ukraine, because suddenly it became clear that. Um, we live in a in a world of insecurity, which really reaches straight to the European borders. And um, there is, or has been for years, of course, concern about the developments in the Western Balkans and also external players becoming more and more active there. But there was no strong political leadership either on the side of the European Union or on the side of some Western Balkan countries that they really move things ahead. Some did, but others didn't. So we have seen a, you know, a slow process over the past years. And now with Russia's attack on Ukraine, first of all, the fact that Ukraine and Moldova have asked for candidate status to EU accession and have actually been granted that status and accession negotiations may be opened as early as December this year. 
um, there is clearly a dynamic. Um, and those two countries are probably among the neighbors of the European Union, among those who on the one hand ask for EU entry and are most affected by Russia's intervention. In one case, a war, in the case of Moldova, also uh, Russian military presence in the country, but then also very many other ways how Russia tries to destabilize um, the Republic of Moldova. So I do believe that enlarging the European Union is a geopolitical necessity. However, the challenge for Europe is to balance both the sense of urgency to bring in countries quickly, but on the other hand, to make sure that the European Union is enlargement ready. So if new countries come in, it actually gets even stronger and is not weakened because the system isn't prepared for so many members. You know, this is where I believe the uh, enlargement of the European Union and its own reform really have to go hand in hand because the whole purpose is to make the European Union stronger through enlargement and to help protect uh, the countries that feel very exposed to external influence. How can that be practically done? Because we know that any a profound institutional reform in the EU has to go through the veto players and they could block anything they don't want. And we had problems with, with Hungary, with, uh, with Poland. So is it feasible? Can it be done at the end of the day? Uh, it is difficult, but it is feasible. I, I remind you that enlargement as well uh, must go through um, uh, unanimity. And so, you know, uh, you could argue that we cannot uh, do uh, the deepening of Europe because of the obstacles of treaty reform and unanimity. We may also not be able to do enlargement because of, uh, of unan unanimity obstacles as well. Uh, I think there is a great realization and a degree of Franco-German alignment on the notion that we must do uh, deepening and, and integration and reforms of the EU institutions before we do the enlargement. Uh, and I think the real question is whether European leaders, in particular during their European Council meeting in December, will have uh, the ambition to sort of lay out a plan and a timetable and a roadmap for institutional reform in the next mandate of the European Commission. And of course, they don't all agree on the outcome of that institutional reform. Um, but I think most members of the European Council at this stage realize that moving from a European Union of 27 member states to a European Union of potentially 36 member states will make the European Union um, very difficult to maneuver uh, without profound institutional uh, uh, changes. And that's why in, in our report, uh, uh, Daniela and I and, and the group of 12 experts that have worked on, on, on this, have uh, decided to put a, a, a timetable and, and, a, and a target date in this report by stating that uh, by 2030, um, the EU should be enlargement ready, but also that uh, accession countries uh, should be uh, enlargement ready uh, as well. And, and we believe that timetable is very ambitious first, uh, but it is also useful in uh, stating quite clearly that basically these reforms need to happen in the next mandate of the European Commission that will start in June of, of, of 2024 and, and, and end in June of 2029. You know, we have basically a bit more than five years to get these reforms going. It is both uh, a short uh, period of time and at the same time, 
uh, you know, long enough to make them uh, happen. And But in order for them to happen, we believe they need to be discussed as part of the forthcoming European elections. And basically, the next parliament and the next commission needs to be um, uh, put in office with a clear mandate when it comes to institutional reform. Professor Schwarzer, what do you think are the most thorny issues in the enlargement procedure? You wrote also that it was the EU budget and funding distribution in a bigger union that would be a problem. How do you view that? What do you believe must be done? So institutional preparedness is really one part. And this as such is already difficult because when we speak about decision-making capacity, so the ability to take decisions quickly and to avoid that veto players stop the whole process, um, then we, we also talk about countries giving up their veto rights. And that is, for some, um, really unthinkable because they want to protect their sovereignty. So there has to be strong you know, political work to be done to convince everyone that it is in our mutual interest to move ahead and to improve the way the EU works. Um, on the other hand, and this is really the development of the past month, um, the debate has now shifted towards the question, how costly is enlargement for you know, some member states focus on this more than others, and there are essentially two dimensions to this question. One is indeed a budgetary one. Um, to what extent will the new countries coming in uh, need to receive a lot of EU funding? And what does this mean for others? Are there countries that will switch from net recipients from the EU budget to net payers? But the other dimension really is market access. So we saw a clear shift of position here on the side of Poland, which initially was supportive of, for instance, Ukraine entering the European Union. And then through the issues of grain exports and so on, it became apparent that in the Polish debate, suddenly there was a strong caution of even you know, thinking about giving Ukraine as a huge agricultural economy access to the single market. So what we see is that the policy questions and the competition or competitiveness questions are coming into the game here. And what the EU will need to do is, is pretty big. And it's partially because of enlargement, but in my view, it would have to happen because of the new geopolitical situation anyway. And that is the EU has to think about where it can actually add value and where it can provide European public goods and then how it can do that. And so we need this discussion of what is the EU for? Over the past years of crises, for instance, during the COVID years, we have very well discovered that the EU has to do something to help um, protect citizens in terms of health. So pandemic management, procurement of vaccination and other things have to be provided with support of the European Union, because if you create a space where people move freely and then a crisis comes and you don't have any means to protect, that will by definition lead to a renationalization. And that's why we saw borders coming back up in the COVID crisis. So the EU is struggling itself with what it should do and how it should do it. And it has been actually able to develop its competencies. Also now the big topic is defense and security um, with the crisis around us. So the next European budget should on the one hand reflect what those new priorities are, but then also be prepared to support 
the catch-up process of the new members. That means, and that is very much in our report, we believe that not only in terms of decision-making, but only also in terms of the income side composition of the EU budget, new steps have to be taken. And so we argue for uh, stronger own resources and potentially the capacity for the EU to go and borrow money in the markets. That is an important step forward in, in our view. Um, those are debates we need to have. They will be you know, seen in conflictual ways by some countries, but we really need that discussion what the EU should deliver in terms of public goods and how it can get there. Well, uh, Mr. Vallet, another big issue is um, the need to protect the core of EU values of democracy and rule of law. Because even now in the EU of the 27, we have seen some countries that do not exactly um, uh, respect the rule of law and uh, democracy. So do you think that uh, we need stricter rules if we go ahead, if the EU goes ahead with the enlargement? Uh, I think we're making very clear in our in our report that to us, um, you know, respect of the rule of law is a cardinal value uh, of the European Union that is absolutely non-negotiable. And that's why we propose two important things in this report. The first one uh, is basically a concentric circles Europe um, where you would have uh, the European Union, an associate membership status, and the European political community as an outer layer. Uh, one reason why we have uh, developed that construct um, is to make it very clear that those countries that do not feel comfortable inside the EU, in particular because they do not uh, feel comfortable respecting the rule of law, have options uh, with looser levels of political political integration with the EU, and they have options to leave. And, uh, you know, we have not foreseen in our report uh, a process to expel member states, but we have uh, created a very uh, open door or, or open exit policy so that member states who do not feel comfortable, like the UK, for instance, but potentially in the future others, should feel very free to do so. And we don't want to compromise with them if they're unhappy with the EU as it functions when it comes to the rule of law. The second thing we have proposed, which is important, is a reform of some of the conditionality mechanism and the uh, uh, Article uh, 7, which was designed and thought of uh, for a time where we imagined that if we were to have problem, it would be uh, only one country, and therefore that unanimity rules could prevail. And we have observed that this was actually an obstacle. So we believe that uh, the triggering of Article 7, that the conditionality mechanism should be strengthened so that the EU has more levers to impose uh, rule of law uh, decisions uh, on uh, on its member states. And so we believe that with these two tools, uh, uh, we can create a much uh, tighter framework around the respect of the, of the rule of law in, in Europe. But, but maybe Daniela has more to say about that because she has been working uh, very closely on these issues for a long time. Professor Schwarzer? On the rule of law issue, I think it's probably the most essential one and the most complicated one to achieve. What we have seen over the past years is essentially a political uh, failure um, to protect the principles of the European Union vis-a-vis -vis Hungary and Poland. And now the challenge is that the rules have to be improved 
in order to secure that those standards are met. And this has to happen pretty quickly because the signaling function to the candidate countries is so important. Um, I have heard policymakers from candidate countries actually question whether the EU itself is true to its own principles while it imposes the, um, the transformation in the candidate countries. And this credibility gap, in my view, has to, has to be overcome urgently. Now, um, Shaheen also already mentioned which, uh, which tools the European Union has. And I do believe that in particular, the budgetary conditionality tool is powerful because those countries that are net contributors to the budget will also have to face their own publics and have to explain why um, they are sure that the money is spent in accordance with the treaty's principles that their country also signed up to. So my hope is that the tougher conditionality that has been introduced with a next generation EU fund really is something we can learn from for the design of the next multi-annual financial framework. And I think that will be a very powerful leverage, not only within the EU, but also to make clear to those countries who at this moment have doubts about the EU's own commitment, um, that those principles are really non-negotiable. Uh, Mr. Valle, you mentioned it earlier, we are going through an election year, we will have um, EU elections. Are you worried about the outcome? Are you worried about the rising of, uh, of uh, the far right and even more the normalization of the far right speech? Um, yes, um, I am worried um, in the sense that I think this will make the institutional reforms that we have uh, been discussing more more challenging. Uh, and I think it puts a heavier uh, amount of pressure on the current leaders in the European Council to basically set that in motion now um, before it is um, it is it is too late. So yes, I, I, I have a concern that the European elections, are not going to be helpful, especially if that conversation about institutional reform doesn't start before the European elections. Because I think, you know, if it ha if it were to start before the European elections, it could actually force uh, far right um, and other forces to debate their views about uh, EU institutional reforms and to have European citizens make informed choices around the future of Europe in the coming election. Can I just add one point? And I think uh, yes, of all, I, I, fully, I, I fully agree with Shaheen's um, analysis. May I just add that in 2024, seven European member states are going to the polls um, as our three candidate countries. So there's also this national election dimension, which is hugely important. And it may well be that in this climate of uncertainty, of a not so good economic outlook, given the different crises and even the crises now in, in Israel may, may have an effect on, on that, um, there's a generally tense situation. And if in that situation, Europe critical or even anti-European nationalist uh, political parties gain more weight, be it in the European Parliament or be it in national governments, this will impact the way the European Council and the Council of Ministers functions, and it can also impact the choice of commissioners, um, of candidates that will be sent for a job in the European Commission by the member states. 
So I, I do believe we are really in a in a sort of very critical time for the future development of Europe. And I also believe, as Shaheen has already started um, developing, that we cannot hide the big and important questions um, from the citizens. You know, there may be a reflex by parties to say, oh, we don't want to ask, you know, we don't want to debate the big questions. We don't want to table those issues. But I do believe that it is better to develop a positive forward-leaning project that also includes the bigger questions rather than, you know, pretending they are not there because um, they are there and they will have to be solved rather rapidly. At that point, I wanted to put a question to both of you uh, and about telling the truth and so that the citizens know. And uh, Mr. Vallet, what about migration? Migration is becoming one of the biggest problems in the EU, and uh, um, EU is is not feeling co comfortable about dealing with that uh, issue, about proposing solution. Do you think that that will affect also elections and how uh, EU proceeds with the enlargement? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's clear that the migration uh, issue has become uh, central to European political life. Uh, that there is a great uh, alliance uh, of uh, the far right on, on this issue. And actually it has managed to convince mainstream politicians around, uh, you know, a tough anti-migration line. I found it striking, for instance, that the last meeting of the, Euro the European political community in, in Granada was the opportunity for uh, Richie Sunak um, uh, and uh, and Prime Minister Meloni to stage uh, effectively an anti-immigration summit within the European political community and to effectively gather uh, forces around an anti-immigration agenda. W what I find most concerning is that um, we don't really have uh, an effective way of dealing with migration. We continue to have a level of development aid to these countries that is too limited. Uh, we, we continue to have too few venues for legal migration. And so I think it's our own policies that are effectively fueling this uh, migration wave. And if you believe in demographics, it looks like this migration wave is only at, at its beginning rather than, it, than its end, and that our tools for dealing with that are, are very limited other than turning to uh, you know, uh, more acute violation of human rights than the ones we are already uh, performing. So I find that uh, very concerning. And I think more importantly, uh, given Europe's uh, demographic dynamics, I find it concerning that there isn't one European politician or one European political movement that has managed to convince the greater public that actually Europe will need more migration uh, and that we should find the ways and means to be a more welcoming society. And, and here I would like to to praise uh, the German government uh, and the policies that it has put in place in 2015 when welcoming more than a million uh, Syrian refugees. Uh, you know, uh, very few people talk about this, but if you look, you know, eight years later, this has been uh, an overwhelming success. Uh, the level of, uh, of, uh, of inclusion in society as well as in the workforce of these Syrian refugees uh, eight years ago is unparalleled in Europe. And I think we should be very proud of this, and that showcases that if we were to have a, a smart migration uh, and integration policy, uh, we could uh, totally welcome uh, quite a large amount of, of, of European of migrants into into Europe, and that would actually uh, help uh, Europe's uh, labor market, 
Europe's economy and Europe's uh, society. Ms. Walter? I think the success is, is truly there. However, we also need to look at why the situation in the year 2023 is not as good. And I will stay with Germany as an example, because there's something to learn from this. So roughly, you know, the intake in the first big wave of immigration um, was about a million in Germany. And as Shaheen has said, the integration work, there was a real sentiment of welcoming refugees in the German society and many people invested time and, and also money to, to welcome people very practically. And um, this then took off again when uh, Russia started its full-scale invasion of Ukraine. And um, again, you know, people would go to the train stations with a sign saying, I have four sleeping places, I have two. And so they would literally pick up refugees where they where they arrived in Germany. And if you look at opinion poll data now, roughly one and a half years later, you see that the skepticism has risen. And, and what has essentially happened is that from various countries, the inflow has been pretty stable over the past year. And now on the municipal level, there is a real practical problem of welcoming people. So there's no place to, to sleep. The, you know, the kindergartens, the schools are overwhelmed. Um, and on that sort of very local level now, there is criticism and resentment, and that is dangerous. And I think that happens in many places in the world. That happens in Greece, where many, many people, thousands arrive on islands. That happens in Italy. That happens in countries where they actually move to that are not on the Mediterranean. Um, and also, yeah, it may happen in countries further to the east where, where Ukrainians arrive. So I think this support on the local level to make it manageable and to provide acceptable from a humanitarian perspective uh, welcoming um, uh, situations. I think that is that is crucial. And beyond that sort of very local view of things, I do believe we have to work and continue to work on joint European responses, both in the question of how do we really manage a an asylum system and a processing of applications that respects humanitarian norms that we signed up to, and also the question of border control um, to, to really make sure that Europeans stand by their own standards in managing their borders. Um, I agree with Shaheen that the migration flows into the European Union are very likely to grow. And uh, we have to prepare for that situation both um, with regards to the treatment of refugees and with regards to the ability of our societies to, to actually welcome them so we can succeed integration of those who can stay. I want to thank you both very, very much for uh, finding the time to have this discussion. Thank you so much. Thank you for having us. Thank you for your invitation. Bye-bye. This was another Eliamep podcast with Odin Linardatu. Recording, editing, and sound editing by Petros Karpathiou. Follow us on the Eliamep channels on Spotify, YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and elsewhere. <laughs>